0: Good morning. 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 I appreciate all the feedback I've gotten on last week's sermon. I do know it was a rather difficult topic, but I'm glad to hear that people are wrestling with the text even if we end up coming to different conclusions. I did want to address two comments that I got and get quite often uh, when this topic comes up, so count this as a free many, not so many sermon. Uh, I got asked by quite a few people about a specific passage, and I was even asked to explain it from the pulpit, and I think that's a reasonable request, so if you'll turn with me to Second Peter chapter three. And as short of a time as I have to present some of these ideas and to show you my scriptural reasoning, I can't touch upon every objection and every counterpoint. But since I got so many questions about this particular text, I think it would be helpful to open to it and provide what I believe to be the most contextually faithful and exegetically reasonable interpretation, and one which fits perfectly with the doctrine of election that I expounded last week. So Second Peter the third chapter. We'll start in verse 1. And before we begin the exposition, I'll say that since uh, I manuscript my sermons, I'd be more than happy to send this if anybody wants to look at this particular section who brought up this question and look at it with their Bibles and commentaries in hand. Uh, but you do have to promise not to make fun of my inability to punctuate. Uh, but Second <laughs> Peter 3, in verse 1, we read, This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you, in which I'm stirring you up, By sincere reminder that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles, knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts and saying, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago. And the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being deluged with water. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, Though with the Lord one day is like a thousand years and a thousand years like one day. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and its works will be found out. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens' burning will be destroyed, and the elements will melt with intense heat? But according to his promise... We're looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. The specific question, as I'm sure you can surmise, comes from verse 9. Let's read that one more time. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. To draw out the tension and make us feel the weight of the objection, I'll pose it how some have posed it to me. The conversation usually goes something like this. Austin, I can see what you're saying about election and predestination, all that, you have to admit there's a tension in scripture. On the one hand we have texts like Ephesians 1 which tells us that God has chosen who will be saved from the foundation of the world but on the other hand we have a text like we see in Peter where it says that God wants all people to repent and be saved. So I don't know I think it's probably somewhere in the middle. I don't think we can put so much emphasis on the sovereignty of God that it negates passages like we see here in Peter that seems to say God is trying to save all men and that he desires all men to come to him in faith. Now, I've set that objection up as best as I could so as to not misrepresent anyone. I understand that not all arguments from the passage are going to be put exactly like that, but from my own anecdotal experience, that's usually how it goes. Now, there are people who are on the other extreme who say that there's no tension at all and that I'm simply misrepresenting, misinterpreting everything that I talked about last week. Although I do hope I showed you that I think consistently walking through the text does seem to force upon us a certain conclusion. Bless that's usually how the objection is posed, so what do I say? Well, let's zoom out and make some broader observations about the text, and then narrow in specifically on verse 9, and see if I can't show you why. I think this doesn't contradict anything I've talked about thus far. Second Peter has two major concerns, as far as I can tell. False teaching, which leads to persecution, and the return of Christ. In chapter 1, we do have a rather lengthy section on virtue and assurance of faith, but the rest of the book is tied up with these two themes. In chapter 2, we get the back and forth of God judging the ungodly and preserving the righteous. Let's look at chapter 2, and starting in verse 4. For if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. You see the contrast of judgment between wicked and the preservation of the righteous. We go on. And if he condemns the the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made an example of those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trial and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Then, as we transition into chapter 3, Peter points them to their future hope, the new heavens and earth that they will inherit at the coming of Christ. While persecution and false teaching is plaguing them, the Lord, through Peter, is reminding the saints that they have a future reward that is worth the suffering in the here and now. Although life for them isn't easy, although they are being mocked and persecuted, the Lord is reminding them to remember what lies ahead. Don't forget the reward that awaits you, a reward which makes all this suffering worth it. And don't forget the wrath that is coming upon those who afflict you. It is in this context Of a contrast between the hope of believers and the destruction of the unrighteous, that we get verse 9. Let's read it one more time. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some consider slowness. In other words, the Lord isn't waiting to relieve you of your suffering without good reason. He's not just hanging out and watching you suffer for no reason. No, he's waiting to fulfill his promise for this reason. He's patient toward you, not willing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Who's the you? The first chapter tells us to whom he's writing, to those who have received the same kind of faith as ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's writing to God's people, to the elect. Peter is saying that God isn't watching you suffer needlessly, but he's exercising patience toward you, the elect, so that none of you will perish but reach repentance. The words any and all are delimited by the context. He's saying that the Lord isn't willing for any of you to perish, but all of you to reach repentance. God's desire for people to come to repentance is the very reason he's being patient. And the text says that he's patient toward you. All speech, all words are used in a specific context. And if I'm standing here behind the pulpit of an evangelical church and I say, we all believe that there's one true God, it would be a strange thing for one of you to stand up and say, well, no, the Mormons don't believe that there's one true God. It'd be a strange thing for someone to stand up and say, no, the atheists don't believe in one true God. Well, of course they don't believe that there's one true God. But what I said was spoken in a specific context. What I was saying was that we all here at Collierville Bible Church believe that there's one true God. Context is key. So what the verse is teaching, and this interpretation is shared by Pastor Nick, is that the Lord hasn't come back yet because not all the elect have been converted. He's patient toward us and that if he came back right now before the elect had been converted and gathered in, then they would perish. There are, at this moment at least, unconverted. His conclusion in verse 14 is helpful. Let's read it. Therefore, beloved, since you're looking for these things, that is, the coming of the Lord, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and consider the patience of the Lord as our salvation. The reason that the Lord is patient is to ensure the full salvation of all the elect that he's chosen from the foundation of the world there's no contradiction here with what we've learned last week. In fact, I would argue that the contradiction arises if we take this verse to mean that the Lord desires the salvation of all men generally, even the non-elect. If that's the case, if he truly desires their salvation, I want to contend, then he would save them. But we read in Psalm 1:15-3, Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. And in Psalm 135.6, Whatever Yahweh pleases, he does. In heaven and on earth, in the seas and all the deeps, And Daniel 4.35, all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will and the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? The reason we can know that the Lord doesn't desire the salvation of each and every man, period, is simply because men aren't saved. As one pastor pointed out to me, and I think this was pivotal in my thinking, it's very hard for me to believe that we're going to get to heaven And we're going to see an eternally frustrated God. That God will for all eternity be frustrated and in sorrow because the almighty free will of man has thwarted his eternal purposes. That he eternally desired the salvation of all men, but that he wasn't able to accomplish it because we mere creatures could frustrate his purpose. I think there's a much more natural reading of this passage that doesn't lead us down that path and those conclusions. I heard a sermon by one of the most famous preachers in all of American history, and this was on the radio, and it's a man that's godlier than I am, by far. Someone that's done more for the kingdom than I will ever do, I promise you. But here, I think he was sorely mistaken. In this sermon, he said, and I'm paraphrasing here, in your salvation, God has a vote. Satan has a vote, but you, you cast the deciding vote. Let me ask a question. Who's the determiner of salvation in that scenario? As we'll talk about here in a minute, I don't think we would ever cast the deciding vote for God if it were up to us anyways, but think back to our last question, our question last week. Two people who are ostensibly the same. Let's say twins raised by the same family, and one is saved, and the other isn't. What makes the difference? It would seem like in that scenario, presented by that preacher, it would be that the one twin was simply wise enough to cast the right vote. But it seems like the example given to us in Scripture Especially Romans chapter 9 paints quite the different picture. What made Jacob to differ from Esau? Was it just that Jacob had enough sense to cast his vote in the right direction? What does the scripture say? Let's go back. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it does not depend on the one who wills or the one who runs. And I think we can reasonably infer that it doesn't depend on the one who casts the right vote. But it does depend upon God who has mercy, the text says. Satan gets no vote in my salvation, and neither do I. No, the Lord says that he does as he pleases in the heavens above and the earth beneath. And no one, not me, not the devil, no one can thwart his purpose." As I said last week, all credit, all glory, all praise goes to God and God alone who perfectly planned, accomplished, and applied my salvation. It was purely the work of God. As the old hymn goes, not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. If you'll turn uh, to 2 Timothy 3, we've been in this text many times before, but it bears reminding And I want to address one more comment that was made after last week's sermon that expressed some sort of despair or defeat that I don't think's necessary to be burdened by. I'll paraphrase here, but tell me if you've ever heard something like this. Look, I, I hear what you're saying, but I just don't know. There are so many people who are smarter than me on both sides of this. I'll never be able to figure it out. You ever heard something like that? You ever felt like that yourself? let's remind ourselves of why the Lord gave us Scripture in this text, 2 Timothy 3. Let's start in verse 14. But you continue in the things you learned and became convinced of, knowing from whom you learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. Often when we read this text, we look past the obvious, which is why God gave Scripture in the first place. Note again that very last phrase, so that the man of God may be equipped, having been thoroughly equipped for every good work. When the Lord gave us the scriptures, he wasn't trying to confuse us. He wasn't trying to hide anything from us. He wasn't trying to trick us. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things, yes, they belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever that we may do all the words of this law. Too often people quote that verse to dismiss certain theological conversations out of hand. But I think that's a terrible misreading of the text. Listen again. The secret things belong to Yahweh, our God. But the things revealed belong to us and our sons forever. We have a lot of revelation concerning the topic of election. I want to put forward this rather simple proposition. The Lord has told us about election because he wants us to know about election. That doesn't mean that it's the easiest thing in the world to grasp or that it's as simple as giving the text text a casual read. I'm not saying that. But I am saying that the Lord intends this doctrine to be known and enjoyed. Don't let the debates and the names get in the way of diligent study. Yes, doctrine is difficult. Yes, there are a lot of texts to sort through. But that doesn't mean you can't come to know what God has revealed. If you're tempted to throw up your hands and quit searching for answers here, take yourself back to the basics. How much have I been praying about this? Can we ask ourselves that? How much have I been praying about this? How much have I been studying these specific passages? Maybe even consulting my elders I think sometimes we can let the difficulty of doctrine bog us down to the point of giving up. But God has given this this to us for our good. So keep searching the scriptures. Keep seeking the Lord in his wisdom. Our inability to perceive the truth in the moment doesn't mean the truth is imperceptible. I've seen too many people in my life with low spirits because they feel like this book is too hard to understand. And it is hard. But if I can give some advice, learn to love the struggle. If we can all agree on one thing, it should be that this book is not boring. If you can, through prayer and study, shape your affections to the point where you enjoy and delight in searching for biblical truth, the Christian life will become that much more enjoyable. So for those who feel defeated by doctrine, lift your spirits and ransack the scriptures. It's a worthy pursuit. Learn to love the struggle. Well, for the main portion of this message, we'll be looking at the 17th chapter of John. We're going to start in verse 1 again. And ten minutes into this message, let's stand for the reading of God's Word. 17th chapter of John. We'll start in verse 1. These are the words of God. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, The hour has come, glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him, he may give eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having finished the work which you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me together with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. As we come to your word this morning, let us see your truth plainly. Help me grapple with the text honestly and honor it by my exposition. Let everything I say be a reflection of your eternal truth. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. If you recall, in the last sermon, I set before us one fundamental question What kind of harmony exists between the eternal purposes of the Father, Son, and Spirit? and the redemption of men. Last week, we only had time to explore the role of the Father in our salvation, but this week, we're looking at answering the rest of that question by discussing the work of the Son and Spirit in our redemption. Because conversations about this topic have a tendency to miss the fundamental issues, I'm going to try to frame this sermon with several questions to help guide us to proper conclusions. The first of which is this, a simple question. What did Christ come to do? I'll say it again. What did Christ come to do? For what purpose did God the Son take on flesh and come to earth? We're going to relook at several texts that we walked through last week and try to answer that question. Starting with John 17, let's read the first two verses again. Jesus spoke these things, and lifting his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given him he may give eternal life. Last week, we noted that this text gives us a glimpse of the precious truths that the Father has entrusted a people to Christ in eternity to be saved in time. This we recognize to be the doctrine of predestination or election, as it's called in Scripture. Apart from any considerations of our actions, will, or desire, God the Father graciously elected us to be saved by His Son, Jesus Christ. Today, in this text, we're not going to be looking at something altogether different but we're looking at the other side of the Trinitarian coin, as it were. Whereas last week we saw the Father lovingly entrusting a people to the Son to be saved, this week we're simply looking at the Son graciously receiving those people from the Father and voluntarily taking upon himself their redemption. Because God is one, because God has one plan and one purpose, the Father and Son are working in complete harmony in the act of salvation. Here in verse 2 we see that the Son has freely received the elect from the Father. And what Jesus says he will do for the elect answers the question at hand. Remember, we're asking, what did Christ come to do? According to our text, the purpose for which the Son came was to give eternal life to the elect of God. The Holy Son of God has purposed to accomplish the will of the Father. Our all-powerful Savior is on a divine mission, and He can certainly carry out His plan. The purpose for which He came was not ambiguous. He came to save. Christ Jesus appeared in this world to ensure, without a shadow of a doubt, that those whom the Father had given Him would receive eternal life. Christ came as a man on a mission. He came with His, his face toward an eternal task. He intended to accomplish it. Turning again to a passage we addressed last week. Look back at John 6. And we'll start in verse 35. John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet don't believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given to me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Again, we emphasized last week the gracious giving of a people by the Father to the Son in verse 37. But this week, let's narrow in on the intention of the Son. Verse 38, we read here a specific answer to the present question. What did Christ come to do? He tells us plainly, Christ came not to do his own will. That is, he didn't come to do anything apart from the plan or intention of the Father. No, Christ came to the earth so that the Father's plan could be executed. That plan in verse 39 is reiterated. Now this is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing but raise it up on the last day. Here, as in John 17, Jesus describes the purpose for which he came in terms of the salvation of those the Father had given him. To be raised up by Christ on the last day is to be resurrected, to receive the fullness of gospel promise. We can rest assured that our salvation will be brought to fruition by Christ because he is able to accomplish the will of the Father. He will not fail to bring to pass that which he desires. If Christ purposes to save the elect, hear me, if Christ purposes to save the elect, it will be done. Christ assures us, that much, uh, assures us of that much when he says that he will lose nothing of all the Father has given to him. The Son came down from heaven with a specific purpose, with a specific di- design, with a specific intent. This, if understood properly, grounds our assurance How do we know as believers that we won't wake up tomorrow and reject Christ? That we won't wake up tomorrow and apostatize completely from the faith? Yes, the scriptures say that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ, but that phrase doesn't exist in a vacuum. As Sproul once wrote, We are secure not because we hold tightly to Jesus, but because he holds tightly to us. Left to our own devices, we would be as lost as a ball in high weeds. But Jesus Christ, the Redeemer of God's elect, has come to secure our eternal redemption. I believe the clearest passage speaking to the harmony of the work of the Father and Son, and with it our assurance, is found in John chapter 10. And we'll read a large portion of this text. John chapter 10. We'll start in verse 1. And as we read this text, which you've probably read a hundred times before, read it with this question in mind. What did the Son come to do? Starting in verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he brings all his own out, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they will never follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech, Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus replied and said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not enter, they did not hear them rather. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not from this fold. I must bring them in also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I might take it up again. No one takes it away from me, but from myself I lay it down. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. A division occurred among the Jews because of these words, and many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, These are not the words of someone demon-possessed. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place in Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple and the portico of Solomon. The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us openly. And Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me. But you don't believe because you're not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him, and Jesus answered, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of these are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Here we have presented to us one of the most comforting images in all of Scripture, Christ our shepherd. We all, like sheep, are helpless and feeble, but we have a great shepherd in Christ. Like a herdsman watches over his flock, so too does Christ watch over our souls. But note how similar verses 37 through 30 are to what we've seen in John 6 and John 17. Read them again. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give eternal life to them that they will never perish ever, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Often people go to verse 30 in conversations about the Trinity or the deity of the Son, and while this verse is somewhat related to those things, for sure, its primary focus is to show the unity that exists between the Father and Son in the salvation of the sheep. They are completely unified in purpose and intention. The Father gives the Son a flock, and the Son, as a good shepherd, lays his life down for the sheep. There's one plan and one purpose. Notice also who the sheep are. We have a tendency to think that when the analogy is drawn that it's those who have faith that become sheep. But that doesn't seem to be what the text is saying. Go back to verse 25. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these bear witness of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Far from saying that you be, become a sheep by believing, Christ is saying that they don't believe because they aren't sheep. In other words, they don't believe because they have not been given to him by the Father. Well, it will certainly sound cheesy, the simplest way I've heard this expressed is you don't say ba-ba to become a sheep, you say ba-ba because you are a sheep sheep don't choose their shepherd dear brothers the sheep the shepherd rather chooses his sheep but we don't have a shepherd who is negligent with his duties no we have a merciful shepherd who has come to lay his life down in our stead and what's the result again in verse 28 i give eternal life to them and they will never perish ever no one will snatch them out of the father's or out of my hand my father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Christ seems to believe that these realities, the Father giving him a people and him coming to secure their salvation, serve as the very basis for our assurance of faith. If our salvation is a work of God from beginning to end, if God is the one who accomplishes this through and through, then we're safe in his hands. It seems like from a broad survey of these passages, we've answered our first question. What did the Son come to do? The answer is, He came to save those whom the Father had given him. But, and I promise I'm going somewhere with this, I want to try to answer one more question before we take a step back and look at how this relates to the topic at hand. The next question is, did the sacrifice of Christ make salvation possible, or did it actually secure the salvation of those for whom it was made? That's a confusing question. I'll say it one more time. Did the sacrifice of Christ make salvation possible, Or did it actually secure the salvation of those for whom it was made? Turn to Hebrews 9. Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. Now when these things have been so prepared. The priests, talking about the Old Testament priest here, are continually entering in the first part of the tabernacle, performing the divine worship, but into the second, only the high priest enters, and that once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit is indicating this, that the way into the holy places has not yet been manifested while that first part of the tabernacle is still standing, which is a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices were offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, requirements for the body imposed until a time of reformation. But when Christ appeared, As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy places once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The contrast is made between the high priest of that old covenant order, which although it was gracious, could never actually accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Those old priests had to go back to the temple time after time after time, but when our high priest came, Christ the Redeemer, he came to do away with the sins of his people once for all. That phrase, once for all, by the way, Is a temporal construction. In other words, the author is saying that whereas the old priests priests went into the holy place time after time after time, Christ entered the true holy place once for all time, never to be repeated again. In verses 13 and 14, the author makes an argument from the lesser to the greater. He says that even if these lowly and common animal sacrifices accomplish the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the precious blood of the Son of God accomplished for those for whom it is shed. Christ's sacrifice actually accomplishes eternal redemption for God's elect. And the author makes this conclusion in verse 23, therefore it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than, than these. For Christ did not enter holy places made with hands mere copies of the true ones but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. It's glorious, is it not? The text says that what the high priest couldn't accomplish with the blood of bulls and goats, Christ has accomplished with his own blood. And note that this doesn't simply make the sacrifice. He completes the work of the sacrifice, yes, but as the Old Testament priest then took that sacrifice into the Holy of Holies, Christ made the sacrifice and arose into heaven to intercede for us. He delivered the blood to the Father. Our Christ, our great high priest, obtained precious redemptive blood and then rose into the heavens there to present his perfect sacrifice before the Father. And here's our next question. Does the Father accept the sacrifice? Will the Father be appeased by the precious blood of the Son? Think about that. In the same way that the high priest presented the sacrifice on behalf of the people, so too Christ intercedes for those for whom the sacrifice was made. Is it possible, dear brothers, for the Father not to accept the sacrifice? For His wrath not to be appeased on the basis of the Son's shed blood? Well, let's read on to find the answer. Chapter 10. We'll start in verse 10. Hebrews ten ten. By this will, we have been sanctified. We have been sanctified. Through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Again, once for all time. And every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting for that time until his enemies are put as a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. His sacrifice was efficacious. It accomplished that which Christ intended it to accomplish the eternal salvation of all those for whom it was made. And now again, he stands in the presence of the Father, a lamb standing as if slain as our perfect intercessor. Perfectly and completely turning the eternal wrath of God away from his people. We read about this intercession in one more important place. Turn to Romans 8. Everything seems to come back to Romans 8, doesn't it? And we'll start in verse 31. Romans eight thirty-one. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Notice that the sacrifice of the son was first directed by the father. And verse 32, he who indeed did not spare his own son, but delivered him over. The sacrifice of Christ was directed and planned by the Father. Again, we see perfect harmony between the persons of the Trinity in our redemption. And who was Christ delivered over for? Us all. And what did that accomplish? Read on. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Do we understand the argument Paul's making? If God delivered the Son over for us, if He's willing to give us the most precious thing in all the universe, how could He not be willing to give us everything else? Those for whom Christ died will certainly inherit all things. But Paul goes on, and he uses inherently legal language as if we're suddenly in a courtroom setting. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is he who died. Yes, rather, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who also intercedes for us. No charge can ever be put on our account. We will never answer eternally for our sins because Christ died in our stead. Because Christ took the curse of our sins in our stead. And if Christ died for my sins, then I won't die. If Christ died for my sins, if he died as my substitute, then the substitution has been made, his life for mine. And if Christ took the curse that my sins rightly merited, then I will never suffer a curse for my sins. God's justice has been completely and fully satisfied in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And God the Father, hear this, accepted the sacrifice. The great hymn writer Augustus Toplady put it this way, God will not payment twice demand, first at my dying Savior's hand, and then again at mine. In other words, God will not punish my sins on Christ on the cross, and then punish those same sins on me in eternity. Full atonement has been made. God's justice is fully satisfied. The Father gave a people to the Son, and the Son accomplished their salvation. So we've seen redemption planned by the Father and accomplished by the Son and how these two work together toward one harmonious goal. The Father and Son didn't have different intentions. They didn't have different goals in their respective roles in salvation. But both Father and Son worked as a God with one mind and one will who desired one goal. Perfect harmony. But the Spirit fits into this harmonious plan as well in what we'll call the application of redemption. With the Father, we have redemption planned With the Son, we have redemption accomplished, and with the Spirit, we have redemption applied. It would be legitimate in one sense, as long as we clarify what we mean, for us to say that we were saved 2,000 years ago on Calvary's tree. That was the time at which my sins were thrown upon Christ. That's the time that my salvation was secured. But according to the Scriptures, I'm saved at a particular moment in time, the moment of faith. This dynamic is explained best, I believe, in those categories mentioned just a moment ago. Redemption accomplished and applied. While the work of Christ did everything necessary to provide for me a righteousness by which I can stand before a holy God, that righteousness is given to me, applied to me, through the operation of the Spirit, working faith in my life. The Holy Spirit is the one who gave me the gift of justifying faith. And the reason that the Spirit has to grant me justifying faith as I tried to briefly sketch out last week is because I am incapable of exercising faith in Christ without the Spirit converting me. I'll make this claim up front and then I'll try to show how I got here scripturally. Fallen man is not able to exercise faith in Christ unless he is supernaturally given the gift of faith. One more time. Fallen man is not able to exercise faith in Christ unless he is supernaturally given the gift of faith. Let's take a second look at the state of the will of man. Turn with, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. And we'll start in verse 9. Romans 3. What then? Are we better? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Paul contends that man is so dead in sin that not only can he not be called righteous, but he can categorically say that there is none who seeks for God for God. He doesn't equivocate. He doesn't leave us with any ambiguity. He categorically asserts that those who are still under the dominion of sin do not seek for God. We have a tendency to think that man really isn't that bad, that he isn't so fallen, that he can't come to God if he wants to, but that certainly isn't the way that Paul speaks about him here. And then let's turn to Romans 8 again, this time at the beginning of the chapter. We'll start in verse 5 of Romans 8, The unconverted man, the man who is still in the flesh, is unable to fulfill the requirements of God's commands. Even where we see a bare outward conformity to God's law, our motives and reasons are so tainted with sin that Isaiah could call our righteousness filthy rags before God's face. But more importantly for our discussion, note that last phrase again, those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Does faith please God, brothers? So what's the solution? If we can't come to faith, if we can't turn in repentance toward God, then how is anyone saved? How could anyone lay hold of the promises of the gospel if no one is able to have faith? Remember John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. We aren't able. We aren't capable. But don't misunderstand. It's not as if God is pushing us away. It's not as if we would really come to God, but he's preventing us. No, None of us, if we aren't born again by the Holy Spirit of God, would ever want to come to faith. It's against our very nature as fallen men. We see a similar concept in Hebrews 6 where the author says that it is, quote, impossible for God to lie. I don't think we would ever want to say that God doesn't have the power to utter certain words. He is all-powerful, is he not? The text is saying that it is so against the nature of God, it's so against his character to lie, that it's legitimate to say that it is impossible for God to lie. And in the same way, it is so against our nature to come to God in faith, it is so against our desires to come to him, that it's legitimate to say no one is able. I once heard a very helpful illustration of this concept. It went something like this. Suppose you have in a room a pile of meat and a pile of carrots. If you put a wolf in that room, what's it going to eat? The meat. meat. You're not going to get a wolf to eat the pile of carrots. And in the same vein, if you put a rabbit in the room, what will it eat? It'll eat the carrots. It's in the very nature of the rabbit to eat the carrots. It's in the very nature of the wolf to eat the meat. And if it were possible to have a pile of sin in a room, and the Lord Jesus Christ in a room, we would choose each and every time to go to the pile of sin. John 3, 19 says, And this is the judgment, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his deeds be exposed. How many times have we heard the old example? We're like people drowning in the ocean. And Christ throws us a lifesaver. All we have to do is grab it, right? Dear friends, that's not the biblical picture. We weren't drowning in our sins. We weren't sick in sin. We weren't even dying in sin. We were dead in sin. We were in no spiritual condition to grab the lifesaver of the gospel. Let's look at one more text to drive the point home John chapter 8. John chapter 8, we'll start in verse 31. John 8:31 So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed him If you abide in my word then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free They answered him We are Abraham's seed and have never been enslaved to anyone how is it that you say we've become free Jesus is talking to the Jews here and mentions that they need to be set free by the truth. But the Jews are outraged by this because they had so much pride in their genetics and being descended from Abraham, they make one of the most remarkable statements in all of Scripture. We are Abraham's seed and have never been enslaved to anyone. Never mind that one of the most pivotal moments in all of Jewish history was their deliverance from slavery in Egypt. These Jews seem to be utterly blinded by their own genetic pride. Although Christ could have brought up this massive historical oversight, he goes a different route. Notice how he answers them. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin, slavery to sin. Instead of bringing up what would seem to be the most obvious example in Jewish history, Christ seems to think a better example is right in front of them. They and all who commit sin, he says, are enslaved to sin. It's not that we flirt with sin or befriend sin. No, we all, before we came to Christ, were under sin's powerful dominion. It enslaved us and we could not escape it. The only way, the only way out is given by Christ here in our text. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Our freedom from the dominion of sin, the text says, depends on whether the Son makes us free. We need supernatural freedom from our slavery. We can't simply will ourselves out of our state of sin. We can't simply decide to follow Christ. It is impossible. The only way out, the only way out is for the Spirit of God to bring us to life in Christ. The only way out, the only way we can grasp the saving benefits of the gospel is for the Spirit to give us the gifts of repentance and faith. We can never muster up these spiritual realities while we were in our flesh. We can never have produced them on our own, but the Spirit graciously gifts them to us. This could simply be deduced from everything we've said thus far, but the text is far more explicit than that. Turn back to John 6, this time just for one brief moment. John 6, verse 65. And he was saying, For this reason, I have said to you that no one can come to me, that no one can come to me, that no one can come to me, unless it has been granted him from the Father. The word granted has the connotation of, and the King James actually translates it as given. Coming to Christ is just another way of saying coming in faith, as the context makes clear, and we are told that we cannot do so unless it has been granted or given to us by the Father. Philippians chapter 1 says the same. Philippians chapter 1 and verse 29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Two things are said to be granted to us here, suffering, yes, and believing itself, faith. We're granted as a gift of divine mercy to have faith in the gospel. And one more text briefly, 2 Timothy 2. In verse 34, we read about the servant of the Lord. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. Here's our key section right here. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. Even our repentance is a gift given to us by the hand of an all-gracious God. So then we have seen that in our deadness, in our spiritual depravity, we would have never come to Christ. We would have never repented of our sins. We would have never exercised faith in the gospel. But God has seen fit to grant us those gifts. We are all once, as Paul says, unable even to understand the things of the Spirit of God. But the Holy Ghost saw fit to bring us to spiritual life. To cause the scales to fall off our eyes so we could behold the Lord Jesus in all his wonder, in all his beauty. And once we saw his dear face, we wanted nothing else but to follow him. We were converted. The redemption that Christ accomplished was applied to us, and we were saved. The worship team can make their way up here. In closing, I hope we have seen that the triune God whom we worship is one, yes, not only in being, but also in purpose. That the plan of the Father was not at odds with the plan of the Son or the Spirit. The Father, from all eternity, saw fit to place his redemptive love upon us, and he, in an act of pure grace, sent his Son to save us. And once our redemption was secured by Christ, the Spirit saw fit to apply that redemption to us. So glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost, as it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen.